Welcome to Season 3 of the Fordham IPLJ Podcast. I am the online editor, Patrick Ho. For our first podcast, we're going to listen back to the 26th Annual IPLJ Symposium, held on Friday, September 21st. The general topic of discussion for the symposium was private sector ecosystem of user data in the digital age. The user data control panel will evaluate different approaches to privacy, determining whether there is more effective practices to address users' lack of control over their data. The moderator for the panel is Ari Ezra Waldman, Professor of Law and Director of the Innovation Center for Law and Technology at New York Law School. Amongst the panelists is Nizam Packin, Assistant Professor of Law at the Zicklin School of Business, Andrew Selps, the postdoctoral scholar of the Data and Society Research Institute, and Yafit Lev Aretz, Assistant Professor of Law at the Zicklin School of Business. As a programming note, for my PLJ podcast, we'll be releasing a new episode every Tuesday. I also want to give a special thank you to Christina Saraborn, the online editor and host of this podcast last year, as well as Chloe Curtis, our symposium editor, for putting together such a great symposium. I hope you enjoy this episode. again to the panelists for participating. I wanted to personally thank Professor Waldman, Professor Sylvain, Professor Lezebnik, and Professor Russell, who were extremely helpful to me in narrowing down this topic and identifying interesting speakers. Um, and now it's my pleasure to introduce Ari Ezra Waldman, Professor of Law and Director of the Innovation Center for Law and Technology at New York Law School. Professor Waldman will be moderating the user data control panel this morning. Thank you. So hi, everyone. My name is Ari Waldman, and it is my pleasure to um, moderate this panel with not just wonderful scholars, but also great friends. Um, uh, before we begin, I want to mention Dean Diller's words generally, but also specifically about Professor Reidenberg, who unfortunately can't, couldn't be with us today, even though he would, of course, love to have been. Professor Reidenberg has played an extraordinary role in my life and in my career. We, he was not just one of my first mentors when I started out in this field, but become a great friend. And anything that I can do to help him and to help Fordham Law School in his absence, I, of course, will do. But um, so, mess, so uh, shout out to Professor Reidenberg. And I'm sure all the students here who have taken classes with him would agree. Uh, as I said, it is my pleasure to moderate this panel. The way this is going to work is I'm going to um, do uh, short introductions uh, of our speakers. They're going to speak for about, about 10 minutes, uh, maybe some with, some without PowerPoint or presentations. And then I'm going to ask some questions, um, really just to highlight how awesome and brilliant they all are. And then we're going to highlight some, uh, give the audience an opportunity to ask uh, questions. So hopefully this will be a highly interactive, really exciting, uh, really exciting panel. Uh, first speaker today is going to be, uh, uh, right to my left is Andrew Selps, who's a postdoctoral scholar at Data and Society Research Institute. Andrew is also a visiting fellow at Yale Law School Information Society Project, where he studies the effects of technological change on legal institutions and structures with a particular focus on how technology disrupts society's traditional understandings of civil rights and civil liberties. His current research examines how certain standard legal concepts that serve as underlying bases for accountability, such as explanation, fault, and liability, may need to be re-examined as applied to machine learning systems. 
So that is incredible. And um, Andrew's work is um, widely cited and recognized in the field. Next to, so next to Andrew is Yafit Lev Aretz, who is an assistant professor of law at Zicklin School of Business, where she just started. Congratulations. Um, she is also a research fellow at the Toe Center of Columbia Journalism School. As the digital environment constantly evolves, Yafit studies self-regulatory regimes set by private entities and the legal vacuum they create. She is specifically interested in the growing use of algorithmic decision-making, intrusive means of news dissemination, choice architecture in the age of big data, and the ethical challenges posed by machine learning and artificially intelligent systems. And finally, to her left is Nizan Pakin, who is assistant professor of law also at Zicklin School of Business. Um, where she joined in 2013. She researches and writes about financial regulation, business law, corporate governance, consumer protection, information policy, including cybersecurity. Her scholarship has appeared in journals such as the Washington University Law Review, Indiana Law Journal, Houston Law Review, oh my God, William & Mary Law Review, Chicago Kent Law Review, and on and on and on. And now that I feel completely inadequate, I am going to turn the panel over to Andrew, who's gonna start. Thank you. Thanks for that, Professor Waldman. Uh, and I want to say thanks to the Fordham IPLJ for inviting me here and for setting up a great discussion. Um, so the prompt for this panel was to talk about the lack of user control over data and how that's affected by the GDPR, specifically the GDPR's rights of access, erase, erasure, and data portability. For those who don't know, when I say the GDPR, I mean the, the EU's new omnibus data protection law called the General Data Protection Regulation. In my own research, I've only worked on the GDPR with respect to the debate over a so-called right to explanation of automated decisions. So I'm gonna mostly talk about that debate and about the second half of my remarks. But the, the for, fortunately, I think that debate actually nicely encapsulates what the GDPR does with respect to protecting data subjects via control over user data. So as most of us might know, the, the GDPR was not actually the initial data protection regime in the EU, but rather replaced something called the Data Protection Directive. The authors of the GDPR saw the failures of the Data Protection Directive, and presumably the failures of the United States Notice and Choice Regime, to allow users meaningful control over their data. So there were two possible responses to this failure, assuming the goal was to better protect data subjects. One was to double down and strengthen data subject rights. And the other was to create a regulatory regime that was not rights-based, but rather enacted structural changes to the data economy based on what appear to be inherent inequities. The GDPR mostly went the first route. Um, for example, the GDPR creates rights to data portability, which means you have a right to take your data from Facebook to a competing um, social media platform. Data access, which means you have the right to see what they're what they have about you. And erasure, which means you have a right to, with, to have your data deleted from a platform. These are all meant to empower the data subject and to give them more control. The GPR also allows for, certain, for only certain legal reasons under which data may be processed, one of which is consent. But it also makes clear that data processing based on consent must be quote unquote meaningful consent that can be withdrawn at any time. These are all rules designed to empower the data subject. Where the GDPR does go to a more structural bent, it focuses on requiring companies to appoint data protection officers um, as central points to file complaints and to perform data protection impact assessments and high-risk cases to try to think through how their uses of data might harm people. 
But both these requirements are impositions on companies that tell them they need to keep doing what they want, but just make sure data subject rights, they have a way to take data subject rights into account. So even these structural changes are focused on the individual rights of the data subject. Fundamentally then, the GDPR is pretty conservative in nature, um, despite what people have might, maybe said about it. And it recognizes the data economy as legitimate, but wants to enact some improvements by granting more control. So it's possible actually that the GDPR ends up with more radical changes. The ability to withdraw consent at any time for data processing truly threatens the data economy if it's enforced as written, right? So it makes any data obtained via consent unreliable to build systems on. If you try to do machine learning and somebody says, no, delete my data, then, all, then you have to rerun all your processing, reset up your, your you know, algorithm, and it's a huge problem. And um, EU data protection legend, Marie Hildebrandt, actually argues this is exactly right, right? So she says the GDPR is about um, fundamentally restructuring the data economy and they should actually you know, believe the EU when they say that. I have my doubts that the EU is gonna actually have an appetite to fundamentally restructure the internet. They're not gonna wanna sort of test their power on the global stage to quite that extent. So I don't know that these structural changes are going to matter or are going to occur really. All right, so the question is, are the increased control rights enough? And this is where I wanna talk about um, algorithms and algorithmic decision making. Um, by sorting people into desirable and undesirable customers or employees, um, what we now call AI systems, right, create winners and losers. And so you can ask, what's the harm? One might say there's no harm in principle. If you're a less valuable customer, you should be treated like one. So there, the task is to ensure the accuracy of the data and to make sure that the data isn't based on, for example, race or gender. And that's really the approach of the GDPR. So one tool that the GDPR um, uses to police algorithmic decision-making has been called the right to explanation. Uh, many algorithms make decisions about people that are hidden, opaque, or inexplicable. There's been an explosive debate the last couple of years about whether the right to explanation actually exists and what it encompasses. My position is that, and I've, I've you know, published on this, is that specifically articles 13 to 15 of the GDPR grant data subjects the right to quote unquote, meaningful information about the logic of automated decisions. And I don't see how that means anything other than a right to explanation. The extent of that right, I'm, I've also argued, is that it has to be good enough to let data subjects know whether they should bring suit under their more substantive rights or under human rights law. Some people argue that there is no such right. Some people argue about different scopes of the right. My stance is actually the most expansive and note that I'm just about to tear it down. Um, so there are really three reasons one might support a right to explanation of algorithmic models. The first is just a matter of dignity or autonomy. No one wants to live in a Franz Kafka novel, right? While, while that might be the intent in part, it's not really measurable or a regulable outcome. And so focusing on it risks creating a transparency fallacy. We're being told about what's going on, right? Google say, we're gonna totally mess with you um, and you not having any ability to do about it, to do anything about it. That's being called the transparency fallacy and it won't really help anyone. So the second possibility is that if we explain models, individual data subjects will have the ability to change their outcome. The best example of this thinking is the idea of counterfactual explanations that Sandra Wachter, um, Brent Middlestadt, and uh, Chris Russell wrote about, where the form of an algorithmic explanation is to figure the least amount of change that will flip the result. So for example, if given your profile, you needed to make $60,000 of income 
to get a loan and you only had 50, they'd say, okay, if you had $10,000 more of income, you would have gotten the loan. That's your explanation. This is fundamentally a control approach to algorithmic farms. Was the data correct? And if the data was correct, then it's on the data subject to change what they can to get the loan. Does that make any sense? Why should we be asking about how the data subject can change their fate? And why shouldn't we be asking about whether the algorithm that decided their fate was justifiable in the first place? And that's where my issue with user data control-based regimes is. So the third reason someone might want an explanation of algorithms, not really implied by the GDPR, is that because in, is in order to understand whether an algorithm is justified, you need to ask about the motivations and the process in creating it, not just about the model itself. Usually, when we regulate decision-making um, in other legal contexts, we're judging whether there is a justifiable basis for the decision, not just trying to demystify the decision and accept the basis as a given. And fundamentally, I believe the algorithmic explanation debate is actually a microcosm of the GDPR's entire approach. As I mentioned earlier, faced with a choice of whether to double down on user control or think about directly holding the powerful agents of the data economy accountable, they chose the former. So no matter, but I think no matter how good user data control or user control over data gets, the most important question for accountability is when and whether collection and uses of data um, are fundamentally exploitative and should be curtailed. And perhaps it's just too difficult to imagine upending the existing data economy entirely, or maybe the EU didn't want to test their power on the world stage. But where one believes that the business model is fundamentally exploitative or unfair, then there isn't an amount of user control that can change that. Ultimately, I think we need to be thinking a lot more explicitly about power and about economic relationships. I'm not sure how to make this change. One little thing I've been thinking about is language. Right? So to me, the idea of data protection, which is the foundation of European law, and in the US, we're not even there. We're talking about privacy, not even data protection, um, has come to mean something of an individual right of data control. And therefore, we should just move away from the term. I really like the idea coming out of a lab in uh, Cardiff in Wales um, called data justice. Right? What would it mean to think about the data economy in terms of justice and equity rather than control? I think we'd be in a better place because ultimately the goal is not control. The goal is justice and fairness. Thanks, Andrew. Um, we'll, I'm going to hold off on questions, um, from, hold off on our discussion until after everyone has a chance to present. So, Nitsan. Uh, I will also uh, reference some of um, some of the discussion about the GDPR, but uh, what I want to focus on is um, user data control in the sense of us being users consuming algorithms online and trying to figure out what's best for us, the users, and uh, weighing our options, deciding uh, which decision or which recommendation we want to adopt. And so we all live in a society that is very code-dependent. This is the algorithm age. Obviously, every single decision we make throughout the day is impacted by different <coughs> algorithms that we use, different apps. You want to go somewhere, you look at your um, cell phone to figure out which route you should take. Uh, you're looking at Waze, you're looking at Google Maps. Either way, you're trying to figure out what's the most efficient, cheapest, fastest route you could take. You're looking for a flight, uh, you go online to one of the sites such as Kayak, and you're trying to figure out when is the best time to purchase it, which airline, should there be a different service you should be using that will direct you to a uh, better deal. We're looking at different um, uh, possibilities for investments and all sorts of other things that us consumer uh, finance users or even in general uh, 
consumers who consume decision-making processes online are, um, are using are all pretty much algorithmic-based. Uh, but we don't really know the nature of these algorithms and who programmed them and, and what these algorithms are based on. Uh, and what I argue is that while we don't really know, we sort of refer to them and kind of assume that they have the best answer for us. Meaning we almost passively outsource our decision-making processes to algorithms, thinking that they're either more cost-efficient or more accurate. It's pretty much economically rational to argue that we should rely on algorithms. And so while we do that and, and also assume that these algorithms are, are experts, they know better than us, better than human experts, perhaps, um, I argue that, that something is lost, lost. And in particular, what I sort of think is lost is our ability and, and, in, in, and even more so our desire to consume, to request a second opinion. And this might not sound like a big deal because if you're happy with the result, why should you purchase or seek a second opinion? And in most cases, second opinions are not that critical. And there's an interesting article that uh, Professor Jeff Miller from NYU has written about second opinions. And he pretty much uh, agrees with a lot of the literature that in most cases, second opinions are not that critical if the consumer, if the user is happy with the result they're getting. But um, when are second opinions critical? When the user has doubts, when the user is not sure, when the user was hoping for something else or, or is not positive uh, that this is the result that would be optimal um, for her. And, and that's when if you get a good second opinion, it could be very, very useful because it could completely change the result of, um, of the decision or the situation. And so um, seeking this like dissenting voice or you know, shopping for that like second opinion, I think is, is fairly critical and something that we're potentially losing in this era of big data algorithms and, um, and sort of outsourcing our decision making. And so, uh, one thing to get the second opinion might be something that you are more familiar with in the medical context, but it's not at all. And so companies looking to figure out litigation strategy, they go to one firm, they're not happy with what the law firm has to offer, they might shop around for a different law firm's perspective as, as to how they should go about this litigation, <coughs> litigation strategy. Someone who's looking for a mortgage, um, it's always useful and beneficial to, second, to search for a second opinion, second option. Um, people investing online. All these different types of things that we as consumers do in the business or in the personal capacity are things that second opinions could be very, very useful in, even though they're completely outside of the medical context um, scope. And in particular, and this is based on a lot of different types of literature from different disciplines, this desire to seek for a second opinion is linked to a lot of different human traits that we value very much in our society. And those are creativity, innovation, critical thinking, adaptability. We don't want to lose um, all these traits and tone down uh, the ability to develop them in our members of society. And so um, while society currently does sort of nudge us to tone these traits down, and, and there are other challenges that are introduced by this uh, tendency to uh, trust algorithms and outsource to them more, I argue that uh, there are certain things that, that could be done. But again, this is sort of like this phenomenon that I refer to as the lessening of the second opinion is the combination of us finding it to be economically rational, cheaper, more efficient, more accurate, and in most situations, in most situations, it really is more accurate, more efficient, um, cheaper to rely on, on algorithms. But also viewing them as superior experts is, is what is disturbing to me and I think also a little bit new 
because, uh, well, it has been sort of considered to be economically rational to outsource to algorithms. So far, it hasn't really been argued that people always assumed that algorithms would be a superior authority than human experts in certain areas. And that's something that I uh, want to speak about a little bit because of uh, run a, a few um, survey experiments on Amazon Mechanical Turks that kind of you know focus on and I think are, are worth, worth exploring. And so big data algorithms are, as experts is not something that should be very shocking to most of us. Obviously, big data, the ability to analyze big data, to process all sorts of different insights, create new correlations, is something that is very difficult for humans to do. And, and while you could do some of that manually, obviously the possibilities are endless and all sorts of new, exciting um, insights can be very, very helpful to all sorts of different fields, uh, whether it's finance, medical, uh, HR, pretty much everyone uses big data analysis right now and for a reason. Um, and so it is fair to argue that algorithms that can utilize this tool could do a better job than human experts at times. And so uh, while people assume that, uh, one thing that should be pointed out is that most people don't necessarily understand what goes into an algorithm. And your average person might think that, you know, when an algorithm spits out an, spits out an answer, it's almost like a scientifically proven equation and it is what it is, and you can't really argue with that because um, that's sort of like the scientific objective truth. Which in reality, we now know, especially those of us in this room obviously interested in this topic, that you know, it is far from being a, a scientifically objective truth. Algorithms are created by people. Um, they're fed what we feed them. If we have biases, they have these biases as well. And so it is very, very far from being a scientifically objective truth, although we do give them that hollow effect that experts receive and, um, and benefit from. And so uh, what I try to do in, in the survey experiment that I mentioned before is survey 800 people and sort of give them a few options, several questions. I'll present a couple very quickly um, here today, which are basically uh, asking people, sort of different groups of people, um, how much, how confident they are, how you know, much they would rank their level of confidence in a human expert versus an algorithm, uh, algorithmic expert. And then after realizing that the expert they used made a mistake, uh, how likely are they to use that um, expert, whether it's the online algorithmic expert or the human one again? And the results were, were you know, fairly straightforward. There was significant difference, uh, both in high stake as well as low stake. And, and obviously, I know that um, asking people about high stake versus low stake hypothetically does not get us much um, because it's not real money that we're um, using. But nonetheless, it was interesting to see that uh, all throughout the different groups, high stakes or low stakes investments, um, people felt more comfortable with the algorithmic expert. And even after realizing that the algorithmic expert made a mistake, they still felt more comfortable trusting the algorithmic expert again versus the human expert. Um, so that was sort of interesting to me to see. And, and these are the results. There's a significant difference. I'm not going to bore you with um, regressions and, <laughs> and so forth. And so um, this sort of phenomena is, is, is concerning to me. I mentioned before there are several problems that I think this triggers, and I'll quickly go over some of them and, and then kind of talk about solutions and the GDPR and what can be done if something at all, um, if anything at all. And so the first thing is that, you know, it's really critical for people to understand that algorithmic algorithms cannot produce neutral objective results. As I mentioned before, they're based on biased programming and data selection, and there's the black box effect, all sorts of things we've been talking about in literature in the last um, decade or so, and it is critical for people to understand that as they sort of rely on these opting not to stick for a second opinion and, and kind of 
uh, feeling comfortable outsourcing to the algorithmic experts. The second thing is that um, we are losing our um, sensation of free choice. This is a key thing in, in uh, participatory democracy, and, uh, and, and um, I'm not gonna go deeper into that, but I think it is a point worth mentioning. And um, the third point is giving up other results, giving up the hope of getting other results, and, and that leads to less innovation and less creativity. You're not gonna disrupt if you think there's no option in getting something else. And so uh, this obviously tones down creativity and innovation, things that we are trying, especially um, in the era of technology and big data to, to encourage. And then there are certain traits, there aren't many, but there are certain traits that people still believe that AI can't easily replicate. And so those are the ones that I have associated before with the desire to get a second opinion, that innovation, adaptability, thinking outside of the box, the creativity. Um, so all these different traits. And then number five is psychological and social values, even if they are less economically rational, in trying to be that, you know, David, you know, beating Goliath, going against the odds. And this relates also to some historical notions of the American dream, and even in sports, social studies have, have found that, interestingly enough, across the world, people always want to root for the weaker team, for the underdogs. This is something that has consistently been discovered in, in all different countries where it was studied, and people want to believe heuristically that you know the impossible is possible and, and sort of try to to imagine that they too can can somehow beat the odds um, it gives them great sense of hope and and a desire to continue and last but not least there are obviously negative impacts on the right to privacy when we outsource everything to online algorithms and so can the GDPR be a savior? We just heard that maybe there's some type of you know, a right to explanation. And one of the things that the GDPR is talking about is sort of perceiving um, anything that is just automated decision um, making system uh, is something that might be uh, unfair because you don't have any way of getting some human insights in there. And so uh, while there's a debate obviously on how much um, of an explanation, if at all, you can get, I think this is tricky because uh, this specific requirement of maybe getting the having the ability to have some type of a human intervene or or review some type of a, an automated decision making uh, process is tricky because of of a few um, things that I'll, I'll quickly mention. And so one of them is obviously almost like with trials in America where we have jurors and they're exposed to inadmissible evidence and we might give them all sorts of instructions to not think about what they just heard or think about it in a specific capacity. Studies have shown and, and, ju and justices in the Supreme Court have been arguing for decades that there's very li limited value to that. We can't really undo what has been done. And so this is uh, sort of the one thing humans that will review automated decision will not be able to completely ignore them. The second thing is there are studies that talk about algorithmic aversion, and those speak about the fact that humans, even if they're not too happy with outsourcing everything to an algorithm, if they can have their uh, take at, at the algorithmic result and tweak them a little, studies show that about 5% of the result, if you could slightly modify it, you're happy. And so even if you're an expert, you still might refer to the, you are likely to refer to the algorithm and think that their decision that the algorithm decision is the right one. If you can just tiny bit tweak it, okay, there you go, I'm happy. Um, so that is also not gonna be as helpful. And the last thing is, unlike you know trials where you can have like a mistrial if there's severe problems, who's gonna sort of figure out a way to do that here and what would be the instructions and what sort of format would we follow? So I don't know that that's gonna be a very good solution even in the EU if um, you actually did have the ability to have humans um, get full transparency and kind of review these um, algorithms. And then sort of last but not least, um, can we adopt a new policy? Is there anything we could do? 
And, you know, well, obviously this is very tricky. There are a few things that maybe I think could be done. And so one of them is sort of using choice architecture, kind of give people all sorts of caveats, so, sort of like alerts that kind of, you know, pop up on your screen and say, well, you know, algorithms are based on, on different programmers' perspectives of the world and different data. It's not everything that is out there that was put into the algorithm that you just used, FYI, right? Or almost sort of like figuring out using big data algorithms, which people are more likely to never seek for a second opinion and then sort of introduce that concept to them. Kind of say, oh, well, we suggest that you use these and these are, uh, algorithms that are based on slightly different assumptions or use different data to kind of, you know, um, nudge these people to actually consider this tool and, and, and use it more. And last but not least, sort of fighting fire with fire, right? It's not necessarily guaranteed that people would do a better job. They might be biased, everything we mentioned. But maybe different algorithms based on completely different things could open up people's perspectives um, and, and sort of give them different flavors and different options, and they might you know, want to shop for that. And we know that they're cheaper. We spoke about them being economic and, and efficient financially. So why not? One of the problems with uh, second opinions right now is that historically they've been expensive. Not everyone could have afforded going in and getting a second opinion. But if algorithms are cheaper and more accessible, why not? And so um, that's all I have uh, for you today. And I obviously welcome questions, comments, and, and all sorts of uh, inputs and feedbacks later. And I'll give it to you. Thank you. Yafi. OK, so we heard about problems with um, data-driven insights. And we heard about behavioral consequences, the death of the second opinion. I want to um, step in from a slightly different perspective and talk about beneficial uses of data and how we should approach them. So it's often referred to as data philanthropy, which means donations, as in free of charge, of private sector data, access to that data, or data-driven insights for a socially beneficial purpose. Now, before we move on, I'll just note that the use of the, world, of the word philanthropy is historically and politically loaded. And in this specific context of data philanthropy, I uh, personally believe that also legally it's inaccurate to talk about philanthropy. But we're going to keep using this term because that's the term that has been used in the industry and in practice and in academic literatures. So um, just note my objection and let's move on. To give you an example, of uh, data philanthropy, I'll take you to Nepal in um, April 2015. Mm. Uh, it brought the uh, most destructive earthquake that Nepal has ever known. Now, in the course of an earthquake, the first thing that people are doing is moving around. And that's a very healthy human instinct, but it makes rescue and aid efforts very, very challenging because we don't know where people are and where we should send those rescuers. So in the course of that specific earthquake, um, a Swedish nonprofit organization called Flowminder collaborated with researchers from Columbia University and Ansel, which is the local phone company in uh, Nepal. Ansel provided mobile data. And Flowminder researchers were able to build population displacement maps that were not only able to tell in real time where people are located, but also predict with high accuracy where they will be located within an hour, a day, a week, and so forth. And then um, we can see how rescue efforts and aid efforts became by far more effective. So when I first got interested in data philanthropy, I wanted to understand how it works. So I conducted some informal interviews, and you can see um, 
a list of uh, some of the companies that I spoke to. There are others that uh, asked to remain anonymous. And I, I found really interesting uh, findings from those interviews. In the interest of time, I cannot go over all of them, but I will focus on the last one about privacy views. So all the employees I was talking to were very determined and happy with the work they're doing. They felt like they're working on, on a great mission um, in the name of the greater good. And they're probably, they're probably right. But because they were seeing their job as such, they felt that privacy was kind of an inconvenience that is in their way. And um, for, that, for this reason, their view was of, of a very narrow compliance means of privacy, um, as opposed to viewing privacy from a user's perspective, looking at, at users' interests and their privacy expectations. And then I moved to look at the literature. And I found that uh, in many academic uh, disciplines, we have a lot of discussion around data philanthropy and the use of corporate data for public ends. Um, and interestingly, in most of these discussions, there were specific explicit calls for legal academics to step in and provide some guidance uh, and clarification on data philanthropy. But then when I went to the legal literature, I found nothing. And that was um, quite surprising to me at first, but then I, when I tried to understand why, that's the case. I realized that first when you think about it, the practical need for legal guidance is kind of overstated. Because if you're a company today and you want to use, reuse the data you collect for socially beneficial purposes, all you have to do is put it into terms of service. And many companies do that. Facebook is doing that, Google is doing that, and many others. But beyond that, also a practical or realistic reason is um, that the legal community of uh, privacy scholars I mean, we dedicate our lives and our careers to fight the data collection culture. And many times we find that data is being collected illegitimately and used unethically. And this is what we oppose and fight against. And to kind of step aside for a second and say, yeah, you know, but this data could also be beneficial and it's already there. Let's use it and let's talk about how to do it responsibly. That's a morally challenging task. And I can say that because that's what I chose to do. I chose to do that because I think that staying out of the conversation is the worst of all worlds. Data collection continues. There is a huge data hunger out there. And illegitimate uses also continue. At the same time, data philanthropy gains traction. There are a lot of data collaborations. And we're not there to provide guidance and talk about how to do that responsibly. When we talk about data philanthropy and privacy, the first question to be asked is, is privacy really a problem? And I suspect it's not. I suspect it's not because, like I said, the practical need is overstated. Um, and you can see that when people point to data philanthropy concerns, most of the time their concerns are linked to error, misuse, um, discrimination, profiling, all kind of concerns that are broader than the traditional privacy concerns. It's more of informational concerns. And also, you can see that what people are actually looking for is some form of legal acknowledgement. We want data philanthropy to be part of the legal discussion, which it hasn't been until now. And this is why I propose a data philanthropy exception to the fair information practice principle, the FIPS. Um, so the FIPS are not law. They are soft law, there are 
Um, they are principles that are the bedrock of privacy protection all around the world, and they are widely accepted. There are different variations. Um, and the reason that I think we should use the FIPS is that we're not in a position to, to kind of reform privacy laws generally, but also specifically for data philanthropy, because data philanthropy is still a young phenomenon, and we're still studying it. So the FIPS has two specific principles that are in direct conflict with data philanthropy, the purpose specification and the use limitation. In simple language, what the, what the FIPS is demanding is that if you collect data, you need to specify the purposes for which you collect the data, and you need to limit the use to those specific purposes. But the whole point of data philanthropy is kind of serendipity. Sometimes you look back and then you say, oh, we have mobile data, and there was an earthquake. Let's use it for that. So it's kind of in a, in a direct conflict. And for this reason, a data philanthropy exception to the FIPS would be very helpful, because not only it would provide some guidance on how we should act in those data collaborations, but would also expose the possibility of donating data for socially beneficial purposes to all those younger player, smaller players sorry, in the market that are not familiar with it. So the data philanthropy exception, as I proposed, should be a three-tiered exception. We start with categorizing or classifying the use into one of the use privileges. Exigencies, is this an emergency? Responses, are we responding to a social problem but the time pressure is not so, is not so urgent? Or are we producing collective knowledge? Is it research? And um, you can all understand that if we are under time pressure, if there is an earthquake now, or a war, or something that we have to deal with at the moment, we'll provide less privacy protections or informational protections. But as we move toward research, which used to be, by the way, the place where we all feel very comfortable, but research is the place where a lot of misuse is taking place. Uh, that's where we'll dis, uh, demand more, more informational protections. Then we move to a risk assessment, and this connects to some things that have been said here in the panel about user control and accountability. In the risk assessment, we should look at the risk from not using that data and the risk from using the data. And pay attention to the fact that I'm not saying the risk from using versus the risk of not using. They should not be juxtaposed against each other. They should be part of a holistic evaluation of the risk at which we look at, for those of you who are familiar with contextual integrity, we look at users' expectations of privacy, we look at social norms, and by having this holistic understanding of how people would expect their data to be um, treated in that specific situation, we can make a decision. For example, if an earthquake is taking place right now, we would all be comfortable with the mobile of our, our mobile data, mobile data about us being used to save us, correct? Anyone here feels differently? Good. Uh, but what if the earthquake is not here? It's in a different city, it's in a different state, it's in a different country. Maybe some of us will feel uncomfortable, but maybe the answer would be, even if you feel uncomfortable, you should still do that. As a society, we believe you should. So all of these questions should be part of the risk assessment part. And then we move to the post for use retention. That's the last requirement. Um, if we use the data in an emergency, post reuse retention would be the shortest. The emergency settled, we don't need that data anymore. Get rid of it. If we use it to um, address a, a social issue, a social problem, the time retention would be longer. And uh, for collective knowledge, it would be the longest. 
for various reasons. Sometimes you need to validate or you need to revisit your, um, your results. So with that, I'll leave you and we'll move get to you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ify. Really fascinating panel. I think we covered quite a lot. And I want to give as much time as possible to the audience for questions, but I'd like to start with a few of my own and have a little fun up here. And uh, I want to push back, I want to gently and respectfully push back on all of your presentations uh, with, two, um, with two questions. So let's start with one. The, the caption for this presentation, this panel, was user data control. And each of your presentations in their own way talked about ways that we can return control to, to users, whether it's through revisions to the FIPS, whether it's a different focus than what the GDPR is doing, et cetera. And my question is, is that enough? User control is what everyone talks about. When Mark Zuckerberg went before the Senate, he said the word control 56 times. And that's what industry wants. It's like, we're going to return control to the users. And that's what people say the GDPR is doing. That's what people say the FIPS, like a full version of the FIPS are doing, and, um, and so forth. So in each, of your in each of your projects, is your goal to return control over data to users. And given what we know about user inability to exercise control, users' um, tendency to underestimate future risks as compared to current benefits for giving up data, is the return of control, whatever that means, sufficient to protect user rights, user privacy rights? Anyone can start with that. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think I sort of answered this in the end, and I don't think the answer is yes, right? Like, I don't think that's sufficient. Um, I couched a lot of my initial remarks on if we think the fundamental, uh, the, the data economy is fundamentally exploitative, I should say that personally I believe that it often is. Um, and we, the task we should all be charged with is thinking outside the sort of very narrow scope of impermissible um, inferences and conclusions, which is a very tiny idea of what discrimination is, and there and everything else is just sort of fair game. We have this regime in law where we assume, unless it's a very particular prescribed reason for decision making, businesses get to do whatever the heck they want. I think that has to go away. We have to get over that idea in the world where all data tells about all other data, and. Only, and that has nothing to do with user control, right? That has to do with a fundamental reform in how we think about law's relationship to the economy. Much bigger questions. Individual users have no power to enact that kind of change. That's the kind of change that either, I mean, has to come from the top down, which, you know, I'm not suggesting grassroots activism is not a part of it because that's how political change often happens, but it's a political change. It's a cultural change. And so, no, I don't think user control is mm -hmm. enough. <laughs> Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I think I, I have to gently push back against your understanding of what you said, <laughs> because I actually heard Andrew, Nitan, and myself to be saying that user control is not enough. Um, but there is a real challenge, because when you move away from user, there is a reason why we're focused, why you know the law has been focused on user control for so long. And it's the reason of not being over paternalistic. You don't want to determine for people what is best for them. But I think Andrew's point is, is, a, is a valid and strong one, that in this case, people cannot make these determinations for themselves. 
there is a huge broad economic um, considerations to be taken into consideration and this is not something an individual can do. Nita? Um, I agree and I just want to add one more thing. So, you know, obviously informed consent is, you know, an actual real thing which you never <laughs> almost get, right? Because show me the person who actually read his entire bank statement or his term of use when he uh, joined whatever, you know, account of whatever app online. And so in this environment, really everything else is sort of, you know, uh, <laughs> taken for granted. Thank you. If we don't have informed <laughs> consent. Uh, thank you. So um, I agree with you. Um, I uh, recognize from your presentations that all of you, despite the name of this panel, thought that exercising control or reasserting control was insufficient. So then I want to talk about your solutions, your proposed solutions to it. And I don't know, I feel a little, I feel like we need to talk, a lo talk about those proposals a little bit more. So for example, Andrew, your proposal, and you admitted that you weren't sure what to do about it, your proposal was to start with changing terminology. Um, and Yafit, your proposal was to, we need a change to the FIPS. And um, Nitsan, you talked about, you know, your presentation was about the trust that we have in technology and how we may need to, we need to kind of push back on our general tendency to just trust technology um, without, without question. And um, I'm concerned that those solutions, given that you all recognize that returning control is insufficient, I'm concerned that those solutions are not enough. Adding uh, something to the FIPS is going to be super. Okay, great, totally. Let's totally do that. But the FIPS have been basically ignored for the last 30 years anyway, except for notice and choice. Changing language is super. That's a great place to start. Um, data justice, I think that can have an important expressive effect on what we mean when we talk about privacy and data protection. But changing language is going to be nothing when companies get their hands in the law and get their hands in applications and, and implementation. I don't, I don't think anyone cares what we call it. And I think, Nitsan, you're 100% right that we need to push back against this tendency to just trust technology. But again, the GDPR doesn't really do anything about that. So what are we, have you just highlighted the problem, and then what are we supposed to do about it? Yeah. Nitsan. Okay, so obviously there's no like simple answer to this <laughs> question, but what I sort of think is like the best, you know, starting off point is a cultural change, right? So, you know, red meat cigarettes, all these different things that used to be, you know, taken for granted. And, and, and we have sort of with, you know, you know, mobilizing society to view them differently, created cultural changes. And now, you know, if you want to smoke in a public street in New York, you feel a little bit embarrassed. And if there are kids <laughs> staring at you and you're like, oh, I'm doing something wrong, right? So mm -hmm. I think, you know, cultural changes are like a good place to start. I think in that respect, the GDPR is doing a good job because Maybe it's not as efficient, and, and maybe it's more conservative than it, people actually say it is. But there's some, you know, cultural discussion and cultural shifts happening in Europe because people are thinking this is this is happening. Things are moving, and so I think that's probably our best place to start. Great, Yafid. Yeah, oh, whoever. I just wanted to follow directly yeah, on that. Ahead. So, like, the reason I was thinking about language is for this, for exact reason. I think it's a fundamentally it's a cultural problem, right? It's this this idea that. I don't know, uh, we, ev individual actors in society should be responsible for their own, you know, their own outcomes that has encapsulated sort of at least the American cultural 
ideas for the last 40 years or something, that's what we're talking about needing to change. That's a cultural question. I also think at a slightly lower level, there are policy changes that can be made. I've, I've advocated for something called algorithmic impact statements, where, where it's focused on companies like actually having to think through the problems before they implement the algorithms. So there are interim policy changes. But I do believe fundamentally, if we're gonna get away, if we're gonna have something effective, we have to get away from user control, which requires cultural change. So I totally agree with Nisa. Exactly, to follow up on these uh, two um, perspectives. So I think the key words here is a start, which Nitan was talking about, it's a good start. Um, and also a change, uh, a cultural change or a conceptual change in a way. Um, so yeah, we start with these two, and actually data philanthropy is situated exactly within those changes, those broader changes that I hope will take place regardless of what's gonna happen with data philanthropies. Great, thank you. Uh, I wanna open, open up to questions from the audience. I have all the questions left, but still, I wanna hear from you guys. Who has, who has questions? Actually, I read, an, I read an, a pedag an education article recently that said instead of asking who has questions, I should ask what are your questions? In, sight, in sense, asking questions assumes that you have them and gives you the opening to ask them. So, what are your questions? Ah, right here. Doing the Oprah mic thing. Hello, my name is Roger Hewer-Candy. I'm a JD student here at Fordham and a member of the IP Journal. Thank you very much to all of the panelists for your very interesting uh, talks today. Uh, this question is specifically directed towards Professor Geslovich Packin, although it, the response of any panelist would certainly be welcome. I was struck by your attachment of algorithms to the concept of expertise. And while you started to look at that in the larger picture of what's happening with <clears throat> democracy, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about it. And um, specifically, how the popular attitude towards algorithms fits with this flow of mistrust or even revolt against expertise that seems to be working its way through the Western democracies. If you think about Brexit, there was large-scale mistrust of economists. Um, in this country, a lot of people mistrust climate scientists and so forth. So in that context, do you think that it's because people have more confidence in the scientific validity of algorithms that they trust those more, uh, even if that sense is mistaken? Or do you think it's that just people have not stopped to think about algorithms as a form of expertise, and they're just using them out of habit, and uh, the tech companies do a very good job of packaging the algorithms as something that empowers the user. But if they stopped to think about algorithms in the way that you are framing it in your discussion today, do you think that some of that popular mistrust towards expertise would then extend towards the algorithms? Thank you. Thank you. Um, so this is this is a great question. You're actually uh, focusing exactly on the issue that sort of you know uh, amazed me the most about this project, which is uh, this association between algorithms and expertise, right? And and so I, I quickly want to just um, share a, a, an interesting anecdote that one of my uh, colleagues, who's a professor at Boston College was, uh, I, I shared this project with him and he told me that he did this experiment in class given that, you know, it's a highly educational uh, institution with people that are uh, intelligent and he was interested to see their perspectives and it's sort of, you know, a, a big classroom with 80 students. He asked them if they were interested in trying to find something um, and, and uh, they Googled it, if they would take it for what it is or would continue searching and maybe try to, 
so I gave them a series of questions, and in, in, in all the different questions, everyone in the class was sort of like, well, I found my answer in the first page of my Google searches, and I'm, and I'm confident and happy with that I had enough sample. And, I, and he was pretty amazed by that. He said, wow, this is really like astonishing. You would know better. You know, the Google, you know, you can change the order of things. This is not like an expert. And, and he was like, you should probably, you know, be interested in that and, and sort of know that. Um, in terms of uh, sort of figuring out that, that algorithms are, are experts and, and is this something that we see more and, and where. So um, a few European colleagues uh, have heard me uh, discuss this were shocked because they said, what, in, in Europe there's no way people would think algorithms are experts, that's part of the whole GDPR issue, no one would trust an algorithm over a person, this is amazing. I should probably point out that the study that I ran on, on Amazon Mechanical Turks had 800 um, survey takers from America. So I don't know in terms of cultural differences if it would have been different had I ran the same uh, list of questions among European audience, maybe. I, I can't really answer that, but what I can say is in terms of like age, gender, race, the, the answers were the same. So people felt the same way about this. Um, in terms of like the shift between professionals to algorithms, so it used to be historically that people needed to get licenses to be professionals, and even the actual words, you know, professor, professional, like you needed to have someone study a lot to become licensed and have this um, higher level of expertise to be viewed as, as someone who knows and, and as an expert. Well, as nowadays, uh, we lose trust, as you correctly pointed out, in most of, of the professions and studies. As a recent study from 2018 shows um, that the professions that still have the most trust are the ones in the medical world. So doctors, nurses, pharmacists, um, Teachers, surprisingly enough, also uh, are, are scoring relatively high up there. Uh, not so much lawyers, you know, bankers, <laughs> uh, other types of, of professions. So it sort of seems like in terms of um, the medical world, they still have more of this like expertise uh, uh, image. And I wonder if it's because it's harder to sort of understand some of these insights and, and opinions on your own or it, you need to actually know more substance to kind of interpret you know, that and make more sense of it. It's not as easy to kind of you know, assume that you got it based on a few uh, Google searches or, or big data correlations. But in any event, what is interesting is the fact that you know, the more um, sophisticated an algorithm appears to be, the more people think this is representative of the truth. And, and so they don't really question or inquire as to what it is based on. Uh, what assumptions it's running on, uh, what is the data that it's using, who picked that data. I mean, we know that it's impossible. Even Google doesn't look through all the information out there, what is even out there, right? And so um, it's, you know, obviously this shift towards like technology being an expert. I think a lot of it is based on convenience. And as we'll see more advanced advances in the Internet of Things technology, it would be even easier for us to just sort of say, well, my fridge will order whatever I'm missing. Uh, right now, and, and you know, my uh, car will talk to my driveway as you know I get closer to turn on the you know. So it's easy; it's becoming easier for us to do less and have things work for us. So that is also a thing, right? It's tempting for us, and and while it's done in a cheaper, relatively efficient way, you know, why should you uh, start inquiring and, and you don't even know what to inquire, right? And so most of us we spoke about informed consent, reading the terms of use, understanding how things operate, and so. It's you know convenience, cost, right, 
and um, availability. It's so easy to just you know have these algorithms around you. How are you going to start finding an expert? Who you're going to ask uh, if they trust this person's opinion? It's just it seems like it's the natural uh, way things are progressing. Sounds like we're becoming autom automatons, just like uh, Evan Selinger has argued. And I'd also add, if you're interested in the connection between technology and expertise, I would read um, Gil Ayal, who's a professor at Columbia, and Frank Pasquale, who's a professor at University of Maryland. Uh, both of them have written about that exact topic. Uh, other questions? And anyone with the next question has a lot to live up to, because that accent was fantastic. <laughs> Hi, my name is Jaime Antibi. I'm also a staffer at the Intellectual Property Journal. Um, I'm sorry for my accent. Um, I also want to thank the panel <laughs> Never for Never apologize for who you are. <laughs> um, and so um, I'm going to address my question to the same panelist. Um, I was sort of struck by the idea that, um, that there's no second opinions out there. Because as a consumer myself, I often feel like I've got a second and third opinion. So for example, if I go on Waze, I check all the routes, cross-reference it against Google Maps, have the same route. I feel really confident in, in my route that I'm taking. Or for example, if I go on um, Kayak and then I do the same on Google Flights, I feel really confident that I got that second opinion. As consumers, are we being fooled into thinking that we got a second opinion, or is that indeed a second opinion? And then just to follow up on that, do those competing algorithms help get towards an objective truth? Do they push each other towards less bias and an objective truth because there is competition within the algorithms? Um, so just a quick correction. I mean, you're looking at the different routes on Waze, so it's the same app. So you're actually not looking for other algorithms. You're you know, checking the same apps, different no, but suggestions. Google Maps yeah. Right, but it's uh, but Waze is owned by Waze Google. Owned, yeah. So you know, so so it's like okay, well, you're fooled a little bit right there, right? But um, so I, I, you know, I think obviously, you know, you're not your average user in terms of your ability to understand and your you know sophistication levels and and even so you know you you said now ways and google maps and and whatever so i don't necessarily know that you know having um several options in that sense ultimately pushes you to better more accurate results it really depends on sort of like the status quo in the market and what people are asking for and what they're using and and, and wanting right um if we don't inquire, for example, for more transparency and, and try to understand what they're based on, so why should they be based on different things or offer more, right? So I think it's sort of like, it's a it's a trickier problem to solve than it, than it appears to be in that, in that regard. I don't know if... Yeah, I just wanted to jump in and say your other example was also flawed. <laughs> and like, it's, it's actually worked off the same flight matrix, right? They both searched the same system. And the reason I point this out is because... Um, the algorithm creates this illusion. So you can have different takes on the same thing. We don't see through it to see what it's doing. Um, this is where you know explanation theoretically could be useful, but even if you're told they're sort of based on the same data, you don't know why they might order things differently. There's just, it's really hard to know. So even if you are checking multiple multiple types, it might not be competitive or it might not be competitive in the way we understand competition, which is to say you have an informed ability to choose between them, which you wouldn't. Think about why, if I can just add, think about why we sometimes get different opinions from physicians. There are, so my, um, my parents are going, I'll give you a real example. My parents are going through a couple of health issues. My father has pulmonary fibrosis for which there's no cure. My mother just had hip surgery. And she's like a bionic woman now because once you have your hip fixed, like you can dance like two seconds later. Um, 
she got several opinions and the differences and and my father my, my father has received several opinions about what his care should be about and sometimes the differences are not based on different knowledge bases we the, all the doctors know about pulmonary fibrosis all the doctors know about replace getting a hip replaced but they have different value, they make different value judgments. So for my mother, some doctor said, well, you're only 67 and some people, you can live like this, but some people wait until they're 70 something uh, because it's not necessary for you to have it now. But if you have it now, it's easier to recover, you're gonna love it, et cetera. But different doctors have different approaches. For my father, um, pulmonary fibrosis makes it really hard for you to breathe. So his life is really hard right now. One doctor said you should think about just making him comfortable. And that's a serious, that, that, that doctor has different approaches to someone at that stage of his disease, while another doctor said, well, we can up his oxygen, we can do this, we can have a home health aid, we can have this. And it's not because they have a different knowledge base, or in this case, different data going into the algorithm, it's because they approach they approach patients with different values. And when you change an algorithm, you may not be getting those, you may not be getting value differences, you may, only, you may just be getting the same data, and you also may not be getting any value approaches. So second opinions can offer things, second opinions from humans can offer things that even different data sets can't offer. Or you may be getting different value judgments and not realize, and not like, know. realize that that's what you're and getting. Not know. Next question. My name, is, my name is Richard, I want to thank the panel as well. My name is Richard Bosch. I'm, I practice entertainment law. Um, this may be an oversimplified uh, request for you to respond to, but um, in light of what you're saying about m moving away, if I understood, from user control, um, would it be helpful to have a standardized five or six uh, option um, before you sign on to any uh, site to give your permit, as opposed to a simple yes or no for the release of your data or not to release your data, to have simple standardized five or six options where you say yes for, let's say, data philanthropy, yes for some other intra-company use as opposed to inter-company uh, uh, use. Would something like that be helpful so that the users could have a greater simplified say in what, uh, what data is uh, permissible and what isn't? Um, that's a great question, but it takes us back to user control. One, one of the reasons user, user control is failing is first people don't like to have a lot of choices. What you just described requires time, costs, um, and even if we do that, so that's one of, the, one of the reasons, for example, that Facebook is now having multiple uh, pop-ups uh, when you're on the site asking you about your privacy um, settings, and other sites also, also did that. But at the end of the day, we can give you very little information that you would actually be willing to take. Um, people, maybe you're an exception, but most people would not be willing to, even if in the scenario that you described, um, to actually read that. They would be like, okay, wh wh where's, wh where can I agree? I just wanna click on it and move forward. So, and, and that's like behavioral economics. People don't like a lot of choices. They don't like to waste their times on this kind of uh, things. We have a minority of people who are really interested and care about that. Um, and they, I mean, that's the reason why we still have value for notice and consent. It's still important to have those statements out there because we need to know what the rules are. 
but most people, even if you simplify the terms and change the design at which you convey them, um, it's not gonna be that helpful. Sorry to be that pessimistic. Thank you. Derva, uh, can we get a question from several of the people, several of the women that have had their hands up? Thank you. You've had three men in a row. And I also have an accent. <laughs> Do you think blockchain could be the second opinion? What do you mean by that? Could that be the possibility of a true second opinion, independent and neutral? So blockchain, as I understand it, is a technology that is fundamentally about um, recording decisions and in a distributed way. Um, it's not necessarily a new way to make decisions or to, to, to change decisions. And so I don't actually see, I mean, I can see there are certain companies that try to um, use blockchain to, I don't know, do a bunch of things. But um, uh, I don't know how it could be a different way of decision making such that it could merit well, a second opinion. So that Facebook or Google will not own the blockchain, you have a variety of players so that you can guarantee more objectivity and neutrality. So, so fundamentally, you're asking about crowdsourcing, right, essentially? Well, it's the blockchain practice, right? For instance, are you know, um, Civil, for instance, is a blockchain company that is building this platform for um, independent journalism um, where different journalists will upload content um, and they will guarantee a certain neutrality and objectivity of process and opinions. And that in itself would guarantee a second opinion. And that is a company that is now building content for decentralized systems. So I think maybe um, what you're, you know, sort of, you know, what you're thinking about and, and having in, in mind is more of like a distributed corporate governance mechanism, Correct. right? Which I, I think is a little bit different from, you know, decision-making processes, but definitely in terms of like corporate governance mechanisms, I, I do think um, that, you know, blockchain, the blockchain does enable for a more democratic, you know, distributed uh, type of a corporate governance mechanism. I think there are several, you know, different, you know, players in various industries that have uh, figured out that it's a good way for them to improve their corporate governance um, mechanisms. But I think it's also not, I mean, it really depends. It's not for everyone. Um, there's a lot of appeal to it because it's like a, you know, a trendy uh, buzz where kind of a, you know, of, a, of it has a, you know, trendy, sense of a, a, and, a, and a feel to it, but I, I think even for corporate governance mechanisms, it really depends on what the company's doing, what they're trying to achieve. Um, it is, you know, distributed in the sense that, you know, obviously it's decentralized and, you know, obviously it has more of a, of a democratic appeal to it rather than one, you know, sort of like corporate governance, uh, um, you know, management. But I, I don't know that in terms of like decision-making processes, it would really be a, a substitute um, for our purposes. Can I just add that it might be helpful in terms of providing access to uh, second opinions and availability of second opinions, but it doesn't touch on the problem that Nitsan uh, mentioned before of the human tendency to ask for a second opinion might be gone. So it's not, it's not just about the availability and access to second opinion. Yeah, very good point. Yes, ma'am. I might be completely off base, but the mention of fruit of the poisonous tree got me thinking. 
And I was wondering about the use of algorithms and experts and the rules of evidence, you know, FRE 702 and Daubert and, you know, how do algorithms factor into the use of the rules and into the judicial process now that they're so widespread? That's not, that's not data philanthropy or, or something that we, um, but I can talk just from like general knowledge. And just like very relevant yeah um so yeah they're definitely making their ways uh, their way into the judicial system um andrew i think you're more familiar than i am with compass um somewhat <laughs> yeah so uh, i mean i can start and maybe you'll um continue but compass is a system that uh, determines risk of um is it um recidivism right um, so it recidivism, and it determines whether someone what, what's the risk of someone to basically getting back uh, to prison. And um, a ProPublica study showed that um, this system is highly biased and racist. And uh, not going into detail, but just to show that this is an example of system that is widely used. I think that in that specific case, it was uh, Florida. But they're, yeah, they're absolutely part of the system. And uh, this is one of the problems that, um, not us specifically, I think, but many of our colleagues are pointing out that should be, um, should concern us. <laughs> so yeah, um, I agree that uh, algorithms within the court context are difficult. Um, specifically, I mean, I, I, I'll co-sign um, what Yafi just said, but specifically, uh, I wanted to point you to literature. Um, Andrea Roth at uh, Berkeley has written uh, two articles Machine testimony and uh, what was the name of the other one? Uh, the, the, the trial by machine, um, and she's very much thinking about exactly this question: like, what does what does an, a, a, an algorithmic testimony um, do from a Dober perspective, for example, or things like that? So, not that many people, I think, are, think, are thinking through the rules of evidence kinds of questions, but it is really important. Also, Kyle Brennan Marquez um, has a paper titled Plausible Cause that touches on similar issues. I'll go back to some, uh, some of my questions, but please interrupt if you have. Um, so one of the, so Nitsan, I'm interested in your, you and I are working on similar projects. I'm working on, Kirsten Martin and I are working on a project about trusting um, technology. And there is a long literature about trust, on it in one respect, um, but there's also a whole literature on trust in technology. Um, I'm wondering if you could speculate, based on your experience and based on the research that you are doing, what do you think, if any, are the factors that may increase or decrease individual trust in an, in the, an automated result or an automated decision making? Do you think, despite the fact that your study showed that this kind of trust is reflexive because that's what kind of you showed. It was more like reflexive trust across ages, across genders. Do you think if we change the scenario a little bit that there might be some factors that more than others that might have an impact on individual trust and technological results? So I think obviously, um, you know, interaction with technology. So obviously younger folks are more prone to use more, you know, cutting edge types of, of technology. I think that's why we talked about cultural, um, mm -hmm changes and norms and shifts before and, and you know just in the last few days there's been like a first draft that has been submitted in California for an internet of things related uh, uh, type of legislation and I and I think you know the more we kind of you know discuss these things and, and the media pays attention to that and people understand um, what 
it means to sort of rely on technology, use more of it, the different uh, um, ways in which it operates, the more there's you know, sort of like transparency just in terms of like people understanding the processes, the more it is likely that we'll be able to actually sort of impact our reliance on technology, our trust of it. And so, you know, obviously now when, you know, Zuckerberg goes and says the word control 56 times and people start thinking about these things and, and they hear more of it, there's more of a, of a likelihood of us actually, you know, sort of impacting or changing some of these, um, uh, some of these norms, you know, influencing the levels of trust. But as we mentioned before, this is like a process that we need to take and it's, it's sort of hard to put this genie back in the bottle. It's going to be a little bit more difficult than, you know, red meat or cigarettes, but we can. Right. Now, you know, younger generations, they don't, for example, post as much on Facebook. Mm -hmm. They don't uh, reveal as much, you know, personal information. They might do it on Snapchat or other, you know, form, forms of communication, which is a different story. But there are, you know, different um, uh, things that, you know, I think, you know, younger students, kids in schools sort of hear and learn about from an earlier age. And, and that exposure, I think, is likely to impact the way we view technology in the future. But it's obviously, you know, the beginning of a longer process. I, I don't know if anyone has, you know, thoughts or... Um, doesn't that mean, unless we have additional questions, doesn't that mean that we are on a road to oblivion? If the technology... It's kind of similar to how we might feel about um, legitimate expectations of privacy. Uh, as we become more inured to uh, technology and technology becomes more available, more invasive technology becomes more available, all of these things become more accepted as, as part of what is expected in society as, for example, we just heard John Hancock, the life insurance company, is now going to stop offering pure, simple life insurance policies and only offer policies that are linked to um, health meters and other um, and, and other ongoing surveillance, uh, other ongoing surveillance tools that are based on what your health is, how you're how you're treating your body, et cetera. So as we become more inured to this, they become more expected, and therefore maybe we trust them more, or they become more just part of life. Mm -hmm. Then how do we push back on it? Well, first of all, I mean, let's. I guess we can assume this panel that that is a bad thing. How do we push back on that? Anyone can answer this. <laughs> Yafit, what do you think? No, I, I, before pushing back, I just want to, uh, to give an example for what Nitsan said about mm. the generational aspect. So when right. my daughter was five years old, um, she asked me about God. Mommy, is there a God? Mm. And I, you know, I'm an academic, so yeah. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm an academic researcher, so I, you know, laid out the different options and explained like the different <laughs> views. And uh, like two minutes into my really thoughtful and discussion, she stopped me and she said, "Ima, can you just Google it?" <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. You're asking if that's a bad thing, and yeah, I think it's a bad thing. But I'm not sure that my daughter or my grandchild, children, mm -hmm. uh, would feel that way. Mm -hmm. so. Anyone? So, <laughs> um, I think this this goes back to the issues of like all the things we've been talking about about how user data control, right? User data control won't work, and if we start from there, we have to ask why, and <laughs> once again, say. Um, cultural changes are needed. Right now, we don't really have a, a language to speak about why something like that is harmful, right? So if, uh, um, this is actually, so you mentioned, uh, if you mentioned uh, contextual integrity earlier, and this is a, a theory Helen Nessenbaum created, um, 
about a decade ago now, um, to, to basically it says that we experience privacy violations when information flows go outside of the expected social context. Um, but there's the the expectations in that um, really sort of are not the basis for the for the privacy violation. They are the alert for the privacy violation when people protest, and so. You, it, that's just a good example. We don't have a language to talk about the normative problems with privacy violations that are outside of what we generally expect. So if we become inured to this, um, these data, these further data encroachments all the time, we right now just don't have a way outside of specifying that, or outside of just like generally stating that there are more data encroachments. There's no way to push back. What we need to do is develop a language to even understand um, what is harmful or why we object. And we, when you return to the language of exploitation and things like that, they seem hysterical almost. They seem like like people, like you're, you're reaching, you're, you're, not, you're being very abstract also. But we don't have that in-between marker. To, we don't have a word for it mm -hmm. other than exploitation. And so I think what we really, the way this changes is thinking about um, harms, thinking about what specific harms we can even have, develop a language for that are not um, the, the narrow concept of discrimination, but might not evoke something you know, might might be exploitation, but it might not invoke something quite so monstrous as that, but maybe a, a middle ground, but it, we're not there, and that's where we need to go. I'm gonna propose something different in the last two minutes, related, but uh, but a little different. In the last two minutes, moderator's privilege. Um, I say that we do have, I think we do have language to push back, and I think it is already in the law, and there it's called fiduciary law. So if, um, so some people might be aware, they, when, if you're familiar with fiduciaries, you may have learned a little bit about them in, in torts or elsewhere. Uh, fiduciaries are our doctors, there are, uh, there are estate planners, there are um, lawyers, people who we entrust information, we entrust things to them, and they have a responsibility to act with on that information in with through duties of loyalty and in our interests. And um, I wrote a book about how privacy should be understood as based on relationships of trust because of this information exchange that we give to these companies. And as a result, and not just me, but lots of other scholars, including Jonathan Zittrain and Jack Falcon, Woody Hartzog have suggested that these companies should have limitations on what they can do with our data based on traditional fiduciary responsibilities, which limit their ability to engage in self-dealing, to limit their ability to use data for their own benefit that actually harms us in some way. So I'm not sure that that answers all of these questions, but I do think it is a language for us to start moving away from, tr from control uh, that gives us a, at least a history about what that might, um, what that might mean. Um, it's at 10.30 right now. I wanna thank our, uh, every single member of our panel uh, for really wonderful presentations. Really great way to start the day. And I also want to thank the journal and every member of the journal, including Chloe and Jeffrey and Michael and everyone who helped organize this. It was a pleasure to participate. Um, and I look forward to a really exciting day. Thank you so much.
The Fordham Intellectual Property Media Entertainment Law Journal is a publication staffed by students of Fordham Law School. Our faculty moderator is Mark Patterson. Our volume 29 editor-in-chief is Jeffrey Greenwood. Our managing editor is Michael Rivera. A special thanks to symposium editor Chloe Curtis, and a sincere thank you to all the panelists and moderators, and to everyone at IPLJ for making this event possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. You can also follow us on our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Fordham IPLJ. You can visit our website at www.fordhamiplj.org for daily content. I'm your online editor, Patrick Ho. Thank you for listening, and see you next week.